So we're reading from Psalm 32 this morning. Feel free to grab a Bible from the back table if you like and you'll find it's been bookmarked to the right place. Psalm 32 of David, a masculine. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. How's everyone this morning? Um, I've had a few people ask about this, just, in, just so you know, uh, I had a skin cancer cut out. It wasn't a fight. Um, so I was tempted to say you should see what the other bloke looked like. But <laughs> um, about 18 months ago, I decided to stop cycling and take up bushwalking. And uh, David Meadows kindly helped me. He's been bushwalking for 70 years and he gave me some advice. And one of the things he said, he said, always take a map and never go alone because you never know what might happen. Well, I'd never been up Quamby Bluff. Been here for 30 years, I thought it's time to climb Quamby. But the group wasn't going to Quamby, and I thought, ah, it's a common climb. Uh, others have done it, should be well marked. So I didn't take a map, and I went alone. <laughs> Not a good move. Sure enough, on my descent down Quamby, if you've ever climbed it, there's a whole section of rock screed, really big boulders that you've got to climb over. And there's just, every so often, there should be twice as many of these markers, I reckon. I managed to get up following the markers, but coming down somehow or other, I veered off course. And I wound up at the bottom, and there was no track. And then I'm stumbling around through bush trying to find track and I thought, oh, I know it, I'll Google it. I get out my phone, no phone reception. <laughs> so here I am, a winter's afternoon, it was August, it's, a, it's getting late, it's getting cool, 
no phone coverage, no one else with me, and in the middle of stumbling around, I fell over and cracked my left knee on a rock. I've still got a mark there from it. And I was bleeding, I was in a lot of pain. The words of David Meadows were ringing in my ears. Always take a map, never go alone, you never know what might happen to you. So I managed to find the, you know, I prayed and I found the track and I said, Lord, oh, I'm so sorry. And I hobbled my way all the way back to the, to the car and I thought, I am listening to David Meadows when it comes to bushwalking. 70 years experience, he must know something. Now, it's always wise to heed the advice of those who've gone before us. That really is the message of this psalm. When David talks about, in Psalm 32, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, he is speaking from bitter experience. If anyone knew about it, he knew about it. Adultery, murder, covering up, he, he, he sinned deeply against God and he's a godly man. So this psalm is like a pointer along the trail, along life's trail, for those of us who care to read it and listen to its lesson. Let's pray that God would give us ears to really take on board the lesson. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask that truly we will have ears that hear the message of this psalm. We know it's possible to sit and listen to sermons for many, many years and not really take into our heart the message of what we're hearing. People have heard the good news about Jesus for years but don't really trust him. And we may have heard the message of the blessing of forgiveness for many years but still be in cover-up mode. Will you guide us? Will you help us? Speak to us deeply this morning by your spirit, through your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So turn with me to Psalm 32. Uh, this psalm has many natural ties with Psalm 51, also written by David, where he confesses his sin after being challenged by the prophet Nathan and his adultery over his adultery of Bathsheba. So they're both written by David, both involve him confessing his sins to God. But what's different about Psalm 32 is that it's written from the after-the-event perspective, looking back for the lessons to be learned. He's written it particularly for the sake of others who might find themselves walking in his shoes in the same situation of wrestling over sin. In Psalm 51, it's David and God. He confesses his sin to God. In Psalm 32, it's David admitting before the Lord the joys of being forgiven and then testifying of the wonder of that for others to learn from it. So if you look at it, you'll see is really three parts. Verses 1 and 2, the joyful blessing of God's forgiveness. And then verses 3 to 7, it's obtaining the joy of God's forgiveness. How, do you, how did he obtain that? 
And then verses 8 to 11, sharing the joy of God's forgiveness. So let's look at 1 and 2, the joyful blessing of God's forgiveness. But before we actually unpack that, we need to consider the meaning of the words there. He has about five different, three different words or four different words for sin. He mentions sin about five times in this psalm. And there's slight differences of nuance, in fact, significant differences of meaning between the words used. So we sin in different ways. Transgression means crossing beyond the line or boundary. For instance, to disregard the double lines on the white road and cross over them, you've transgressed. Break the speed limit. The current sign, over is over, is absolutely correct. Over is over. One, two, three kilometres an hour, you're over. There's, you haven't got a leg to stand on. So, there's a distinct element of willfulness involved in transgressing. 99% of the time, we know we shouldn't go beyond, and we do. It says, keep out. Trespassers will be prosecuted. No one can see me. In we go. I've heard of people going and cutting wood on private land or crown land, and they think it's fair game. It's good wood, and no one will see me. I'll grab it. The root meaning of the Hebrew word for transgression is to cross over or go beyond. Like when you see the red traffic light, you think, oh, I'm in a hurry. And away you go. Now, in verses 1 and 2, we also see the familiar word sin. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And the root meaning of that word is to miss the mark, to be wayward, to go astray, like an arrow that misses the target. Instead of going beyond the line, we fall short of it. So you can sin by, by doing what we sh shouldn't do and you can sin by failing to do what you should do. Both are wrong in God's eyes. And Paul captures the essence of this in that classic verse in Romans 3:23, when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short. We, we don't measure up. We, we don't make the distance. We, we, we just, we fail. So the sin in our heart means we fall pathetically short of living for the glory of God. We end up trying to make ourselves look glorious. Or we live for some hero. People have sporting heroes and entertainment heroes and movie heroes and all kinds of heroes that they basically wind up worshipping. And we're meant to give that kind of adoration to God. We fall pathetically short of living for the glory of God. It's not wrong to have someone that we admire or look up to but it is wrong when you start modelling yourself on them and taking them on board to be your hero and your guide in life. That's exactly what we should be doing with Jesus Christ, taking him on board, letting him be our hero and shape and model our behaviour. 
But that's not the end of it. There's another Hebrew word David uses. You see it in verse 5. I acknowledge my iniquity, I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Now the root meaning of iniquity is crooked or twisted, warped. Like when you spill a cup of tea on your book and the pages wrinkle. I've, I've done that a few times. One time I left a book beside a window and it bucketed with rain. The book was basically hopeless afterwards. It, it was just utterly warped out of shape. Every page, they all stuck together. When you leave plastic in the sun, it might be um, a board or something that it's made of plastic and a cutting board, and you leave it in the sun, it starts warping, twisting out of shape. It gets, it gets bent by the heat. Now that's what sin does to us. Sin twists us out of shape. We see the effects of our iniquities in our bodies as we wrinkle and age. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us start over time to evidence the, the signs of sin in our lives. It just comes out in us. An ageing body is a wonderful object lesson in sin and the need to confess it to God. And the final word is deceit. We see that in the last part of verse 2. Deceit is about lying, hiding, being deceptive, covering up our actions. It's going back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve trying to cover up their sin. And the Lord says, where are you? And he goes and hides. And then there's buck passing. It's just evasiveness and not owning your stuff, wriggling out of things. That's the meaning of deceit. So David says the person who has no deceit in their spirit, meaning their heart attitudes and ways of thinking and living is pure, has God's blessing. Now that's an amazing thing, isn't it? How can any of us who transgress, who fall short, who are twisted out of shape, ever have a pure heart and be wonderful in the eyes of God? The effect of God's forgiveness is to purify our hearts. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So let's read verses 1 and 2 in their completeness. Blessed is the one whose transgressions going beyond are forgiven, whose sins, they're missing the mark and falling short, are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin, they're missing the mark, the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit, no evasiveness, no covering up, no lying. David testifies to the huge inner relief that comes when we own our stuff before God. We fess up. We bring it out of the dark into the light. And we say, my God, I have sinned. We own 
our sin. And when God wipes that scoreboard clean and no longer keeps a record against us, stops counting our sins and holding them against us, the only word David can use is, that's a blessing. That is the blessing of God. How blessed is the person who enjoys that favour from God. It gave David tremendous relief to experience God's forgiveness for his adultery, for his murder, and then trying to cover it up for about nine months or more until David, until Nathan the prophet came to him and said, you are the man. It's like a huge weight rolled off his chest and made him want to shout for joy. The only way to experience this blessing is to confess our sins. You can't have it both ways. You can't cover up your sin and enjoy the favour of God. Now, the Apostle Paul quotes these two verses in Romans 4, 7 and 8. Remember, Paul had made the point in, in chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul begins Romans 4 by reminding us of the good news that the Bible declared Abraham righteous by faith. Not by his actions. Listen to what it says. Romans 4 from verse 4. Now to the person who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. It's what they deserve. They've earned it. However, to the person who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he cites Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. That's a blessing. A thousand years before the gospel was fully revealed in Jesus Christ, David describes the happy effect of the gospel. If you own your sin before God and you deal with it in his system, it would have been bringing a sacrifice which foreshadowed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he owned, when he owned his sin and was honest before God, he was realising the truth that the sacrifice that God desires is a broken and a contrite heart. That sacrifice he will not despise. That's the true sacrifice. And then God credits that as righteousness. Abraham had already sinned before. God had given him the promise. And he, you know, at Sarah's instigation, taken... Um, Hagar, and they had Ishmael, but that was not the child of promise. You look in Abraham's life, he lied several times about uh, Sarah, his wife. He was not a perfect man. But it says that God credited his faith as righteousness, as being right in his sight. Do you know this blessing? 
Is this blessing one that means anything to you? 47 years after the event, it still brings a wave of happiness over me to recall how my guilt rolled away when I confessed my sins to God and received his forgiveness in 1975. Those who refuse to walk this road of faith in Jesus perish eternally in their sins. There's no other road to find forgiveness and acceptance with God. Since all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are incapable of pleasing him. Now, does that strike you as important? Strikes me as hugely important. Far more important than what's happened on the news lately or what's going on in social media. Now, David then goes on to describe what happened when he didn't follow the way of God's forgiveness, a bit like me when I didn't follow David Meadows' advice. How did he obtain the joy of forgiveness? Well, he says in verses 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away because I groaned under a constant weight of guilt. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped like under a hot summer sun. So trying to get his act together, cover it all up, keeping up appearances just didn't work. I detest feeling guilty. Do you know that, that feeling? I, I detest it. It's irksome, that sense of knowing I've done wrong and yet not bringing it out into the open, trying to wrestle and find ways around it. I, I still do it, I must confess. Going over things in my mind, not being able to sleep, weighing my options and potential excuses, it's awful. It does sap you. It's not good. Most often, the person I need to apologise to is Robin. I cleared this with her. She was happy for me to say this. So when I've spent way too much on books, and it's, 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 it's that time at the end of the month again, the reckoning with the finances, and Robin comes in, do you know how much you've said? Or I, I snap at her in anger. And afterwards, now in my heart of hearts, I need to apologise. But instead, I obsess over ways I can weave in my point of view into my apology to try and help us see my perspective. And I wrestle with ways to do that. And it's kind of a half apology when you do that. It's not a full apology. You're not really coming clean. Now, I doubt I'm the only one familiar with such deceitfulness and the anger and the shame it produces. Verse 5 records David's much-needed breakthrough. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and look at the result. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. God's forgiveness is not automatic. God's forgiveness 
comes on the basis of owning the fact that we've sinned. You can't enjoy God's forgiveness until you've acknowledged you need forgiving. But there are heaps of people who just think the cross applies automatically to them. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes, but have they ever come before God and admitted their sins? Is there any contrition? Is there any sorrow in their heart? Do they know what it's like to have their bones wasting away and their energy sapped like the heat of summer because they've got a guilty conscience before God? If we bypass that, then we've just added like a new device or a new way in our thinking to try and um, enjoy a better relationship with God. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll use the gospel and th- that will help me. And I think a lot of people who come to churches, listen to sermons for years, bypass this step. They listen to the message and they say, yeah, 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 I know, Jesus died on the cross for sins. Yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all at the level of their head. They don't know the heat of summer sapping. They don't know wrestling with guilt in their conscience. They haven't spent the time pondering it before God and letting the words sink in and coming to the point of owning their rubbish inside of them, their transgressions, their sins, their iniquity, their deceitfulness. And if we don't do that, it's like we're, we're trying to bypass the cross and think, in the end, God will receive me because I've, I've been, I've, I know the truth. I know the facts about the cross. Others don't, but I do. And we rest somehow or other in what can only be described as human performance. What you know or how will you do something? The only way to be forgiven by God is to own up to the fact that you don't deserve it and you cannot possibly earn it. Notice how David talks to himself. He said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He'd been struggling. And look at what he finds when he does confess. You forgave the guilt of my sin. God forgave this wretched, twisted man who'd fallen short of what was expected of a king of Israel. His adulterous and murderous transgressions were covered over by God when he brought them into the light. That's the only way it can happen. Verses 6 and 7 show him appealing to others to turn to the Lord in prayer and heartfelt contrition. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Therefore let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. David found his hiding place in God. Instead of running from God, he went back to the very one he defended and hid himself in God. And how do we do that? 
We do that by going to Christ, the Son of the living God, whose arms were outstretched on the cross for us. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And we run to Christ. We place our confidence in him, knowing that he died in our place. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And we hide ourselves in God. God in Christ, the hope of glory. So now comes the climax of the psalm. From knowing the wonder and joy of finding refuge in God's forgiveness and wrestling with that, he wants to tell others what he's learned, sharing the joy of God's forgiveness. It's quite possible that Psalm 32 is the outworking of what David declared in Psalm 51, verses 12 and 13. Listen to Psalm 51, 12 and 13, his prayer of confession. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. It may well be that Psalm 32 is his acting on his promise. Verses 8, and 10, 8 to 10 are wonderfully instructive. In fact, some English translations enclose verses 8 and 9 in quotation marks as direct speech from God. Perhaps this is something God actually spoke directly to David in his circumstances. Let me read these verses. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. It's like words from God. Don't be like a, a horse that requires that bit and bridle or a stubborn mule, stubbornness. Is the worst thing when it comes to sin. Stubbornness can be helpful in some things in life. But when it comes to sin, the more stubborn you are about not confessing it, you just miss out. You don't have the blessing. Verse 10. Many other woes of the wicked. David is saying this from the depths of his being. He knows it. And he's warning people, he's saying, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him, the one who comes to him, hides himself in God. So when did God declare to Moses, just think about what God declared to Moses about himself after the golden calf episode. Moses goes back up the mountain and he appeals to the Lord and he says, Lord, show me your glory. Look at what the Lord says. Moses is hidden in the cave and it's like he puts his hand over him and Moses can only see the back part of God, not, not the whole of him, not his face. And this is what the Lord says as that happens. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. 
yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Both of those things come together. If we just take half of it, you like the person who says, yeah, 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 I know, yeah, about the cross, but you haven't gone through the, the sense of owning your own rebelliousness and confessing your sin before God. It's not automatic. You have to look at both sides of this or you'll miss out. There's a heaven and there's a hell. Hell will be for those who refuse to own their sin and so they will have to face the consequences for their own actions. And God is just and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Heaven is for those who own the gracious and compassionate Lord, who see that he sent his son into the world to die for sinners. And they run to him and they place their faith in him and they say, Lord, I've sinned. Forgive me my sins. They know the blessing of salvation. Only God knows if you've offered to him the sacrifice of a broken and a contrite heart. That brings his forgiveness. In verse 11, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. When someone comes to God in all their warpedness, in all, all their fallen shortness, in all of their transgressions and going beyond, and they own the rubbish of their sin and they come to God and they say, God, this is me. They've wriggled out of the cave, out of the darkness, from under the covers, and they're in the light. And they're, they're just saying, this is me, Lord. I've, I've got no ground of being accepted by you. I come to you and I confess my sin. All I can do is plead the merits of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for me. And God credits their faith as righteousness. Not their works, their faith. They're trusting God as righteousness. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all who are upright in heart. The unrighteous can't sing that. They don't know that. They don't know the blessing of having their transgressions forgiven because they're still in the dark. They're still in cover-up mode. The lessons of Psalm 32 are not hard to grasp at the level of wise and helpful teaching. But there will be no blessing in it if you just try to take it on board as a new way to try and gain favour with God. It's not a mechanical step that you just have to walk through. And if you do it, then all will be okay. It's not mechanical. It's got to be honest. It's got to be real. The sacrifice that God accepts is a broken and a contrite heart that pleads for mercy. It's the polar opposite of trying to get your act together in an effort to earn God's favour. Think about it. If you could get your act together enough to earn God's favour, why did God bother to send his beloved son to die on the cross? Why would he do that? If you could just, by your own effort, Get right with him. 
What would be the point of having Christ suffer in your place if it wasn't really needed? Because you could just get your act together and be accepted by God. That's a life of works. It's not the life of grace through faith. That's the point Paul makes in Romans 4. To the person who works, his pay is not counted as a gift, but as something owed. But to the person who does not work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. This is exactly what David says about the blessed state of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. God's forgiveness comes by grace, not by our merit. Now I close with this. I once had a pastoral situation where for years a brother had forced himself sexually onto his sister and abused her, raped her. When it all came out, came out, it was in, in a church, and she brought it to myself and some other leaders, and we had to figure out what do we do with this? We knew in our heart of hearts it can't remain in the dark. It's got to be brought into the light. But the young man, when we went to him, refused to confess his crimes. We took it to the police. He wound up going, he was convicted, of, was guilty, and went to prison. But do you think that young man would enjoy the blessing of forgiveness. All he could do is spit chips at those who dobbed him in. He wouldn't own it, wouldn't deal with it. So he went to prison and had the indignity of being on the sex offenders register for many years and, and being removed from society and the bitterness in his heart towards others because he was blame-shifting, not owning his actions. He didn't learn a thing from listening to sermons week after week after week. The answer is right there in the Gospel. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He didn't get to enjoy that blessing. We can sum up the message of Psalm 32 like this. Don't try to cover up your sin. You'll only deceive yourself and live to regret it. Confess your sins to God and trust him to cover them with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. When you truly experience God's forgiveness, tell others the good news. Tell others about how they can enjoy that blessing too through faith in the Son of God. So when it comes to bushwalking, I now listen to David Meadows. When it comes to sin, I listen to another David. 
David in Psalm 32. I listen to the word of God and I go to the gospel. I say, blessed be the Lord who forgives my sins, my wretched failures, my wretched transgressions and iniquities. Blessed be God. Let's pray.